You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers, and I'm T. Hetzel. Today, I'm so happy um, to have joining me via technology, Megha Majumdar. Uh, Megha, welcome. Welcome to Living Writers. Thank you so much for having me, T. Well, it's, it's lovely to get this chance to talk with you. And where do you mind me asking, since we're doing this all in like the virtual sort of space now, where, where are you speaking to us from? Where, where are you? I'm in Brooklyn. I'm at my apartment in Brooklyn where I've been since March. <laughs> I know the feeling, kind of like in this space even, in the, right? All the same kind of area. Uh, well, how are you doing? How, how are things for you during this, this really strange time? Um, you know, I think like everybody else and probably much like you, it's, it's been a really grim and exhausting time. Um, and, you know, just kind of trying to keep up with the news and, and do what I can. Um, and yeah, I guess I was saying this before we started recording, but um, I'm really grateful to you for taking the time to have this conversation with me. I feel like a chance to chat about fiction and literature um, and whatever else might be helpful um, to the MFA students and others listening. Um, I think it feels like a spot of relief. How are you doing? It, it feels like, I think, a chance to talk about ideas. And also, thanks, well, thanks for writing A Burning, because I was able to become lost in, in the world of, of your novel uh, as well. Thank and then you of so course, much. Of course, was then even more anticipating the chance to get to speak with you. So thank you. <laughs> Thanks for doing this because yes, it takes, it also does um, take energy, but now I find like from you, I've already got some rejuvenation from <laughs> the day is happening already. So I feel the same way. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I was going to say, may it be the same for you <laughs> and, and everyone and everyone listening out there. And um, because I should say we're, we're taping this on the 28th of October, 2020, but we will be airing it next week. So we, it's, it's an, it's a very uh, interesting and highly charged uh, political time in, in, in the United States. And I think it's a really, a really great time to have a conversation with you, Megha, about a burning in particular. But you know what, before we start our conversation, see, you're so, so easy to talk to. I'll just, <laughs> <laughs> it's not my voice I want to hear today. It's yours, Megha. <laughs> Megha Majumdar was born and raised in Kolkata, India. She moved to the United States to attend college at Harvard University, followed by graduate school in social anthropology at Johns Hopkins University. She works as an editor at Catapult and lives in New York City. A Burning is her first book. Follow her on Twitter at Megha Maj and on Instagram at Megha 
dot Maj. Um, and yeah, and we can fill in more more pieces of your biography too. I love that you included the Twitter and Instagram in that. <laughs> I don't know. It just seems like such a part of the world now too, doesn't it? It's true. It's true. I feel like I have been grateful for social media this year. I don't know if you use social media very much, but I felt like, you know, now that we're all cooped up at home, it's really been a place to have conversations and feel connected and see what other people are thinking about. Oh, completely. And yes, yeah, Living Writers definitely has, um, <laughs> it's a meager social media presence, but, but, um, but I'm trying. Trying, trying, Mega. <laughs> um, I will follow you. <laughs> that's kind. That's kind indeed. Well, so how could you tell us about your your origin story for a burning? Let's start talking about your novel, your debut novel. It certainly, it certainly doesn't read like a debut novel. It feels like once you fall into this world, it's. I was in it completely. Thank you so much. That is very generous of you. Um, I started working on a burning um, several years ago when I was just observing what was happening in India, you know, just looking at the rise in um, violence, anti-Muslim violence, um, and just looking at the changes in this incredibly diverse um, and, and secular country. Um, and I felt like I wanted to see, well, in this situation of escalating injustice and prejudice and violence, um, how do individuals move forward? You know, how do individual ordinary people um, hold on to big dreams and chase big ambitions. So that's kind of where the book started. Um, and I landed on these three characters, which um, I can I can speak briefly about if you like. That okay. would be lovely, yeah. <laughs> so the, the three characters um, are, the central character is a young woman who, you know, all she wants is to rise to the middle class. She wants to keep her job at a mall, enjoy her smartphone, um, but she gets into trouble because of this politically risky comment that she makes on Facebook challenging the government. Um, the second main character is her former school teacher, who is this guy who, you know, he feels that his in his work, he's not really having the kind of social impact that he might have wanted to. His students don't take him seriously. They are always trying to skip out of his class. Um, and also and the recognition too, right? Exactly. Not so much caring about them, but right, right. how he's seen and treated. Right. And he, um, he becomes involved in the workings of this right-wing political party. And eventually he has to make some tough moral decisions about what he will do in order to secure his hold on this bit of political power. And the third character is called Lovely. And she is somebody that I really enjoyed writing. She is... Um, a person who lives at the intersection of various kinds of marginalization. 
Um, but at the same time, she just has this defiant, joyous arc where her huge, kind of absurd dream is to be a movie star. And so every week she goes to these little amateur acting classes and chases her dream of making it in the movies. And I wanted to see through these three characters, you know, how people chase dreams, but also hold on to their humor and hold on to their spirit um, in such a situation. It seems like, th oh, thank you also um, for um, sort of giving us the, the intro to each of if the main forces of the, the book. And, and they interconnect as well, um, mm -hmm. because Lovely um, is learning English from Jivan. That's right. And I'm just making sure I'm pronouncing her name correctly, too. And Jivan. And so, Jivan was a, oh, sorry, go on, go on. <laughs> I was just going to say that it's pronounced Jivan. Jivan, Jivan. Mm -hmm. And Jivan was a student of P.T. Sir. That's right. And it's, I love to hear how you're, you're talking about it as um, chasing dreams and, and lovely to me was the one that definitely Im embodies this the most. I, I feel like with Jivan, we, it's, it's kind of amazing how we get to learn about her backstory and with the structure of the novel, when you, maybe we can start talking a little bit about how it started coming together, the making of it. Did you start writing? Because there's it's a, it's a very interesting structure where you have each of the characters um, having chapters, and then we have interludes as well. So was it that you started hearing a voice of a particular character, and that's how we start with Jivan? Or how? Yeah, how did it? <laughs> how did it start for you, Mika? Um. That's a great question. Very writerly question. I love that that you are so attentive to the structure in, in reading it. Um, do you write fiction as well? Oh, short shorts. But I, I, this novel is, is inspiring and makes me want to write as well. <laughs> I'm so glad. I'm so glad. Um, you know, for me, it began with, so once I had the big question of, well, how do people move forward with their dreams in this time, I needed to break that big question down into parts. And I felt that each character was giving me a different path into answering that question or, or even trying to pose that question forcefully. Um, and the first character that I started writing was Jivan. And actually, you might be surprised to hear that um, the first passages that I wrote were following Jivan, who was not yet named Jivan, I don't think, but it was just, you know, a child who was seeking a way to help their mother. I had this idea of, you know, I was very moved by this idea of this moment in your life when you find that you are no longer, you know, it's, it's not your parent who's taking care of you, but you are taking care of your parent. And there's that, there's that flip, you know? Um, and so that is something that I think is still in the book, though perhaps a little bit more subdued, but part of Jeevan's thread is so much about making sure that her mother is taken care of. Um, 
and her father. Her mother, right, and her, right, right. Her parents do not worry about her. So that's kind of where it started, which is probably a surprising starting place. Well, it is because the first the first moments within the first moments of the novel, we we hear about the main like this like the main event of the explosion at the train station but it's interesting because you you don't choose like to show us that as an opening scene it's more important how Jivan is thinking about it and writing about it on social media um yeah that is so funny that you ask about that because for a long time the opening was um a scene of the, that was focused much more on the attack on the train um, and staying close to the perspective of those inside the train. Um, so I had that as this kind of false opening before the real opening, um, but then we worked on it quite a bit. And um, I think it was my editor's suggestion to begin with Jivan's mother and her which I completely agree with, you know, now I'm really glad that there isn't that kind of stop start motion in the beginning and you are right in, you know, one of the main character arcs. Um, but yeah, you're, you're totally right that it was a big part of what I was thinking about. It, well, it's, and it seems so, so, because it, it feels so right and necessary because it's so chilling how this, this comment that Jivan says, because it's, let's actually, maybe we should, instead of talking abstractly about it, maybe we could look at it. Do you want to like sure. the, because she actually, it's just this great also commentary. I feel like uh, throughout a burning, um, there's these social commentaries that are made in just very swift, concise and sharp ways. And this is like one of them, one of those moments where um, we see Jivan, who's just, she works at the mall. What is the name of the store? Like Pantalones or something like, it's so Pantaloons, yeah. I love it, like <laughs> pants, but like a funny name for pants, it's right? It's actually, um... <laughs> Or the name it... of one of the, in my memory, one of the first like big stores that opened in Kolkata. <laughs> so that's where I got the name from. Oh, that's great. Oh, that's great. Well, and then in, and to this point about social commentary. So we learn that she works in a mall, that she's saved up to get her own mobile phone, you know, and then, and you kind of think, oh, a mall, but then later on, there's a characters who try to go into the mall, and they're not allowed to because of the way they look, unless they pay a fee. And so then you're like, the, this, the world and the constraints and the prejudices of the world that we're in. Um, I think you're clear. the first person to ask about that particular section where you know, this character wants to go to a mall with his friend and he's prevented from doing so or like asked to pay a, an entry fee to go to the mall. And um, that actually, you know, that really happened in my hometown. They opened a new mall and it, it was so interesting for me watching these malls open in my hometown, which is Kolkata in India, and see all the ways in which you know, they become points for questions of 
obviously, you know, class to, to converge because you have these kind of luxury goods stores that only a few people can afford to go to or even step foot in, really. <laughs> or um, be near. And then, <laughs> right. <laughs> and then, you know, you have other people in the neighborhood, like um, people who obviously see this new mall and, and, and are obviously drawn to it. But then this particular mall tried instituting an entry fee. They said it was for everyone, but, you know, rumor was that it was meant to keep certain people out. So I was very intrigued by by that and and um, that kind of heartbreaking act of trying to keep certain people out of a space. And and it and it seems like all throughout a burning, that's that's a, a current. We we've been talking kind of in lighthearted ways about Jivan, um, but all she wants is to maybe take help her parents and her get out of this this slum where they've had to move they've moved in from the a rural village right and but yet then she yeah then she gets thrown in a prison and and because of political motivations it's expedient that she is is killed for the state right so um yeah, i hope I really I hope Go you don't ahead. mind us. Do you mind? Well, no, no. Um, but I hope you don't mind us talking about the book. So folks that have read it can, you know what I mean? Like, you don't mind that. Sure. <laughs> Whatever you think will be helpful for, for people listening. Well, what were you going to say then? Oh, I was just going to say that um, with, with Jivan, I really wanted to write a character who, you know, tries to do everything right and tries to work really hard. You know, she goes to school, she gets a scholarship to go to school. Um, and then, you know, she's doing her best to bring in an income for the family. Um, but despite all of this, there is a certain narrative imposed on her by the state. And it's a narrative that she tries her best to challenge. You know, she seeks other ways. She goes to the media to try to get her own story out. So I was also interested in how, you know, it's really such a battle of narratives. What is the most persuasive narrative? You know, what is the one that takes hold in the public imagination? Is it the one that the state imposes on this person? Or, you know, is it one that Jeevan herself is able to communicate? And and these imposed narratives, we're not even saying what is the truth of the matter. It's It's quite literally these imposed narratives. Right. I think it's such a um, it's such a profound injustice because this character, you know, the state sees certain elements of her background and certain elements of her identity and says, you know, here's what makes sense for this character. You know, here's the kind of logic that we're going to impose on this person. And it will be persuasive because of beliefs and prejudices that other people have. Um, but for Jeevan, you know, what she cares about is, um, you know, what she cares about is her, her family's well-being. Let's go back to Jeevan in, in the, on it would be on page five like so this is a very early moment like of the novel and, and Jivan is is 
on her phone. She's experienced, she was at the train station. We don't know the depth of what she experienced that comes later when we learn more about that from her story, right? But, um, but now she's, she's like many people, you get that, you want your your post or what you're saying to have some kind of attention, right? It's such a, it's, <laughs> yes. It's the pull of social media. You want those likes. <laughs> oh, it's a natural sort of thing. But yeah, do you want to talk about it, Mega? Do you want to, this, because this moment is, is critical for the rest of. Yeah. Um, so the moment you're talking about is Jeevan, um, sees this video shared on social media and she is moved by it and decides to, you know, share it once again, adding a caption. Um, and it's a caption in which she, you know, decides to ask a kind of provocative question. Um, and, it, you know, at first she posts the caption and it is mild and it doesn't get very many likes or much attention because that's how social media works you know the more provocative posts get the most attention and so she decides to kind of post a different caption which challenges the government you know she she writes if the police didn't help ordinary people like you and me doesn't it mean that the government is also a terrorist and she's referring to um an attack on a train um and this is the post that gets her in big trouble and it was interesting to me to write this section because i was thinking about you know there's this kind of myth sometimes that we are free on social media to say what we want and to express ourselves but that is not true i think um, for people who have certain vulnerabilities in their real life those vulnerabilities carry over onto the internet you know um, and where some people might be able to make jokes about authorities and those who have political power, other people can't. Um, so I think Jeevan here is probably trying to enact a certain kind of middle-class freedom that she aspires to, but of course that, you know, that gets her in trouble. Mega, did you research this? Cause when, cause when you're, when you're saying this, it makes, I want to say, like, how would the, would the Indian government know of her, I don't know, her standing, her, her economic class, her lack of power? Because I hear what you're saying about, you know, if someone else had posted that, maybe nothing, right? No repercussions. But then she could become a pawn of the state because there were no other people to blame for this. Right. I mean, I think people following um, Indian news will recognize echoes of real cases where people have gotten in trouble for liking a post or sharing a post. Um, so this is definitely something that, um, you know, I was where I was drawing from real events um yeah <laughs> it makes me think even now like on the on the michigan ballot there was something about um privacy issues with your your data 
kind of an amazing, a burning is got this so many things are it feels to me as an um, an outsider. I've never I've never had the chance to visit India yet, um, you know, to experience it. But I have a sense, or you know, I've seen documentaries and mm-hmm. movies, and um, and I would love to go. It feels like there's so many existing worlds in one nation at the same time. Uh, I mean, I know that that must be. I mean, if you look at the U.S., you can say, well look at you, U.S., you know, you haven't reckoned with your, it's a very shorter history in some ways for this nation state, but you haven't reckoned with slavery. You haven't reckoned with, you know, like, so I understand. And that's, we are walking around in these reckonings. We need to, right? But with, um, what am I getting at, right, Mega? Um, but, but with India, even with Lovely's character and who, when you were talking about who she, she represents, the Hijra, right these are these are ancient like an ancient transgender community of india you know it's something that's this this community has existed and in some ways been um venerated or more blessed but also in some ways maybe considered on the margins it just feels like there's so many and then we're talking about the malls and you know economics yeah. and the and then of course the the mobile phones and everything else it's a vast place. <laughs> yes. And yeah. with, and it feels almost like because, and maybe because I'm an outsider to it, then I can see it. Right. I'm very glad that, you know, you're picking up on that sense of, you know, richness and and busyness and all of these different kinds of realities where, you know, this is a world where, um there are communal tensions and there are malls and there's social media and there's, you know, the world of films and and Bollywood. And um, it's, I'm very glad because it's part of what I wanted to convey in the book is it's such a vast world. And within this world, I wanted the reader to feel that they are able to have glimpses of the complexity of all the different elements of this world, you know. Um, So that's part of why I decided to have you referred to this briefly earlier, um, these short chapters called interludes, um, where I follow or the book follows a minor character for just a couple pages. Um, And I felt like, you know, I wanted to gesture toward how big this world is, how many potential um, complex stories the reader can follow in this world, you know? So within this book, I felt I only had room to follow three characters in depth, but then I wanted to hint at, well, here are all of these other doors that that you can that you can open. Um, can I ask you about about the short shorts that that you're working on? I am actually not working on a current project at all. Uh, how does yeah. that feel? The not having a current project. Yeah, the period um, of silence between projects. Well, you know, I wish I could say it was an unusual feeling. <laughs> But I, um, but, and, and I think it's, you can kind of get used to it, which I think is not, it doesn't feel good. Cause then a part of you isn't mm-hmm. really alive. There's, I think there's a way you can be working on fragments, 
and maybe it doesn't have to have a public face to it. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so I think, yeah, I, how, how, because with you, you, your day job is at Catapult, right, Mega? Right. How, how is it? I mean, usually, usually I'll, I'll wait a little bit longer, but are you writing now? Like to ask, like, what are you, what are current projects, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, no, I think that's a, that's a perfectly valid question right now, because it's, you know, like we were just talking about, it's such a stressful time and um, it's a time in which I think we're all doing what we can. Um, for me, it's been, I've been writing very, very slowly um, a, a second novel. And it's been a mix of trying to be disciplined, but also being gentle with myself. I think, you know, there are days where I find that I have just spent whatever downtime I had reading the news or, you know, you watch the debates and it just ruins your night and you have no energy left to do anything else. Um, so I think just understanding that paying attention to what's happening is also an important part of what we can do as, as writers and artists and that we don't necessarily need to be, you know, writing things in a document every day. I think the act of paying attention to the news, you know, listening to podcasts when you're taking a walk or, you know, just observing what's happening around you, that can be a huge part of something that fuels a future project or finds its way into something that you find you need to say maybe a few months later or a few years later and i think that's enough for now that's that those are good words to hear <laughs> i'm glad yeah they they are they um do you feel that with your with your work and with your writing are you does your mind return to india like do you feel like this is going to be like a place where you want like maybe more stories or novels or what's what's yeah. happening for you or what do you want or I think for sure you know it's it's where I grew up and I think it's such a complex place there are so many stories you could tell about different aspects of what it is like to live in India I don't think you could ever run out of stories or characters so I'm sure I'll be writing more about India. Um, and it's, um, I think, you know, like, like I tried to do in this book, part of what really interests me about um, returning to that place is getting to be with that mix of particular intelligence and humor that people have. And this is something that I grew up seeing around me and something that I'm reminded of every time I go home to visit my parents is people living in that in that community where, you know, perhaps your electricity supply isn't great or your water supply isn't great and, you know, things don't work and you have to figure out how to do things even when the institutions um, and systems around you fail you. Um, and I think working with that kind of obstacle means that people are very creative on a day-to-day -day level and very funny. So that, that depth of intelligence and humor is very um, 
interesting to me. And I think it's something that um, you can write so much about. And so much, there is so much humor also in a burning. Even some of, I was thinking the titles of the interludes are so, <laughs> some of them are so funny. I'm um, glad you like them. <laughs> and let's see, I think I wrote down one where it was Gobin visits a spiritual guide. And this is, this is Jivan's lawyer. Um, so we see a little bit mm -hmm. of his backstory. And then I think one, what was it? It's page 82, something about the policeman, like getting a new gig. Right. Yeah. Um, I know which one you mean. I'm trying to flip and get to the page right now. <laughs> which, um, which is a funny title for an unfunny thing, right? <laughs> yeah. But that's how you have to deal with some things to survive it, right? A policeman fired for excessive violence during slum demolition has a new gig. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so funny because um, I think I just wanted to keep these interlude titles pretty straightforward and descriptive. And somehow they ended up having this, this note of humor um, followed, of course, by a pretty, pretty unfunny chapter. Um, but I was just reading this interview um, by Julian Lucas with the author Scholastique Mukasonga, who is a Rwandan author. And she was, I haven't read her. Now that I've read the interview, I really want to read her books. But she was talking in the interview about how um, she has found that humor in her books helps her write about the really difficult things like the aftermath of the um, 94 genocide um, in Rwanda. And that is something that I'm definitely thinking about. Well, and it seems like it's already present in a burning, like there's a way that there can be, um, like a humor can let you go deeper. I think so, you know, I think um, humor is so connected to how these characters, and particularly the character of Lovely, um, how she is able to move through the world because she is someone who, you know, the, the society around her is constantly trying to tell her that she has a certain place um, and that she cannot um, try to move beyond it, you know, that she is, um, she occupies a position of shame and, you know, that that trying to become anything like a movie star is just a wild dream for her to hold. Um, but she responds with humor. You know, when people tease her, she teases them back. She jokes with people when they stare at her on the street and that kind of thing. And I found that writing this character's spirit, which is um, so full of joy, so defiant, so attentive to humor, it felt like um, it felt like a chance to really, you know, write somebody who refuses to accept the shame of this society. Yes. And it's interesting that one of the ideas I wanted to ask you about, because you bring up the idea of shame and you're right, it's being foisted on lovely left and right. You know, she has somebody who she loves in her life, but his family won't allow it. She actually ends up going to as one of her functions to the, the wedding to bless the bride. And, mm -hmm. um, but 
I, I wonder about this, this idea of shame, because when did you know in the writing of this, I don't know if it's possible to say, like if you knew before, or if you, in the writing of it, you found it, but that Lovely would have to betray Jeevan too. Like P.T. Sir, I feel like he's kind of reprehensible, right? I mean, <laughs> well, how do you, maybe I'll just ask you that about Lovely and then how you feel about the character P.T. Sir. Um, lovely, when did I know that she would do that? Um, I think... I think that was something that emerged during edits that I did with my agent. Um, I think it emerged um, later in the book for sure, because, you know, for a long time, I, I had Lovely's arc be upward in this perhaps simple way. Um, and then, you know, my agent and I were talking about it. Um, his name is Eric Simonov. He's brilliant. Um, and Eric and I were talking about how um, the stitching together of the arcs of Lovely and Jeevan, that there was room for more moral complexity there. Um, and, you know, then we, then we were talking about what if she is forced to abandon her position of defending Jivan. You know, what if she is forced to make this sacrifice and reconsider who she is um, on her path to the fame that she has wanted, you know? And, and those were the kinds of stakes that I was really looking for, that I wanted to move closer to in this book is, you know, what do you have to surrender? What do you have to sacrifice in order to move up in such a society where, you know, opportunities are so few and freedom is so narrow? But in a burning, it becomes who? So the like the characters who are interconnected are implicated in in the state's um, mm, murder yeah. of Jivan. Can I ask you? I'm so interested now that you're asking about this. And I don't write poetry at all. But when you write poetry, do you know where your poem is going? Or do you ever find that you, in revisions, it takes a turn yeah, or even in the drafting of it, I think. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, but it, but it's interesting to hear you say, I mean, I think what I'm hearing you say, so is that, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, but that you've, you had a, a working a, a manuscript of this story, but you were finding these different pieces that you either wanted to um, draw out more or did did you write more into the manuscript at that point to to kind of change like like with the example of lovely like how at this point because there's this yeah. lovely moment of complete pathos when we see lovely try to search out Jivan's home and she sees like her father dealing with reporters and then later comes back to sweep all their cigarette butts you know this moment of Friend, like real friendship and yeah. then yeah it's because like because <laughs> yeah how because it's so interesting how did you know you wanted or not you wanted but I feel like 
the story, the novel or what the story of the novel's momentum wanted. Yeah, I think this is probably a good opening into kind of a process question because um, I took the manuscript as far as I could. Um, and, you know, my a close friend of mine read it, my husband read it, and both of them offered incredible astute suggestions. So I did a ton of editing and revision on my own. Um, but the manuscript was eventually at a place where I knew that, of course, it was nowhere close to being perfect, but I had solved all the problems that I knew how to solve, and I needed to open it up to an agent or an editor, and that felt like a good time to um, take my manuscript out um, to, to agents because, you know, I knew that it was as strong as I knew how to make it, but I knew that there would be things that they would spot that could make it even stronger. So this question of like, you know, I, I wrote much more, I think, um, after this conversation, of course, I wrote a couple new scenes, um, but I had done most of the work by that point. So the book had its shape and it just kind of needed to be, you know, pushed in certain places. Yeah. And it also sounds like in a way you have to, I don't know, decide if you're going to trust someone to also know that they have a faith in the story that you're telling. Yeah, I think that is such a vital part. And again, I'm guessing that there are a lot of MFA students who will listen to this. So I think it's such a vital part of looking for an agent. They are not just the person who, you know, is kind of your your professional partner in building your career and, you know, negotiating with editors and making sure your work um, is, is getting to the right editors and all of that kind of thing. But also one of the early things that um, an agent will do with you um, is edits and revisions. And, you know, that's a conversation that um, I had with my agent is, you know, what was his vision for edits? You know, what kind of changes did he, did he see? Um, and that was really, really helpful to have somebody who is just, you know, a, a brilliant mind and is able to look at this book and say, you know, here's where we could push the story a little further. Um, here's where the arc could hold more complexity. And to be able to have that conversation with somebody who sees your vision for the book and somebody that you trust, that is such a key part of working with an agent. Was there anything that you didn't want to hear that you sort of pushed back on and you're glad you did? Hmm, that's a good question. I think I agreed with, you know, the changes weren't huge. They were kind of, you know, turning up some things that were already present. And so I, I definitely agreed with the changes. I don't, I don't remember any changes that were suggested yeah. that, that I didn't, that I didn't like. And, you know, um, I think I will say, like, having said that, um, and like we were 
chatting about, I also work as an editor myself. So I am often in the position of suggesting changes to other writers. Um, I will say that that space of um, disagreement is so good. You know, and I and I think that writers should not be afraid of getting editorial suggestions that they disagree with. You know, I feel like, um, and this is I'm putting on my editor hat a little bit now, but um, when an editor reads your work, they are simply asking the questions that they feel other readers might ask. You know, so if there are moments where the text could use more clarity or you know it's unclear what is happening in a certain scene or it's unclear if a certain scene needs to be five pages rather than three pages you know so that that's the kind of question that it's an editor's job to pose to the writer and then the writer can always say you know this is how I would like it to stay. But all an editor is suggesting when they suggest a change or bring up a question is, you know, take a moment and think about it. That's that's really all it is. And then it is completely the writer's um, right to say, this is how I love it. This is my vision for this scene. Let's keep it this way. It's great to hear you talking with your editor's hat on as well. <laughs> but let's get back to the writer you. Would you would you mind reading from a burning uh, so we can hear? Yeah, hear some prose. Um, everyone can hear. Okay, I'm happy to read um, a little bit from the beginning. You smell like smoke, my mother said to me. So I rubbed an oval of soap in my hair and poured a whole bucket of water on myself before a neighbor complained that I was wasting the morning supply. There was a curfew that day. On the main street, a police jeep would creep by every half hour. Daily wage laborers compelled to work would come home with arms raised to show they had no weapons. In bed, my wet hair spread on the pillow I picked up my new phone, purchased with my own salary, screen guard still attached. On Facebook, there was only one conversation. These terrorists attacked the wrong neighborhood. The night before, I had been at the railway station, no more than a 15-minute walk from my house. I ought to have seen the men who stole up to the open windows and threw flaming torches into the halted train. But all I saw were carriages burning, their doors locked from the outside and dangerously hot. The fire spread to huts bordering the station, smoke, excuse me, smoke filling the chests of those who lived there. More than a hundred people died. The government promised compensation to the families of the dead, 80,000 rupees, which, well, the government promises many things. In a video to the dozen microphones thrust at his chin, the chief minister was saying, let the authorities investigate. Somebody had spliced this comment with a video of policemen scratching their heads. It made me laugh. I admired these strangers on Facebook who said anything they wanted to. They were not afraid of making jokes. Whether it was about the police or the ministers, they had their fun. And wasn't that freedom? 
I'll stop there. Thank you, Mika. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> when when you when you were writing, when you were drafting, when did it come, become clear that you wanted these? Because the, we talked about how there's the three main story arcs that are interconnected. Um, the voices, was that just something that you were like, well, of course it's going to be, then the next voice will be, you know, the next, another character and we'll meet. Um, I kind of had that structure in mind because I knew I wanted this book um, to, to read in this way where it's capturing as much as possible of this really big fictional world. So I knew I needed these three characters and I knew that they would be stitched together in some way, but how I did it um, in very practical terms is I had these three separate documents going for the three characters. So I wrote each arc as a full arc and then I figured out how to kind of chop them up and bring them together and make a whole book out of it. Um, and that part involved um, a lot of work. I'm very glad that I wrote them as, as separate documents because otherwise it was getting hard for me to track, you know, where I was with each character. Um, and also getting hard for me to track um, whether I was leaving any gaps or making sudden jumps in writing the characters. So having those three separate documents was really helpful. Um, but then when I put them together, I found that I needed to do a lot of work making sure time moved in the same way across the three arcs because there were you know moments of unevenness that um that i had to smooth over and rework and revise and just make sure that you know whether we're, we're talking about hours within a day or how the seasons pass or you know when a festival appears in a book um all of that stuff was was a ton of revision and and then for the interludes did you find that you yourself writing those because for some reason like oh you're thinking oh yes i'll write something more about this the lawyer for example um <laughs> you know um yeah i had fun writing the interludes and i wrote them because i I think I felt a little disappointed that I could only write three characters with any depth, you know, and I wanted to signal to the reader in some way that, well, these are the three stories that I am able to tell in this book, but look at all of these other potential stories that you could follow, like look at all of these other people with their worries and contradictions and jokes and humor and um it also felt important because part of my ambition with this book was to write a complex book and i wanted as much to i wanted to resist flattening in in all parts of the book and that meant that i didn't want any characters who you know appear 
perform their function in the plot and go away. You know, I wanted to show that all of these minor characters who surround the major characters are also people who are living through this moment and who are thinking about other things. Um, and the interludes felt like a good way to do that. They were also really fun to write because, you know, rather than having to handle um, these long arcs, I could just kind of go further with a character for a tiny bit and really have fun with it. That's, that's what it feels like reading them too. It feels like <laughs> in this intense, like vividness of the I'm moment so that you capture. Like <laughs> so it's at the very end of a burning and it's, so it's, it's working in a different way. So it's, it's like a, it's an interlude, but it's different because it's not a character study. The past tense of hang is hung. So, I mean, this is, yeah, these last few pages of the novel, it's like, like page after page, you're like, oh gosh. Because <laughs> even that with the title, then the first line of the section is, unless what is being hung is a person, in which case the word is hanged. And then we go into this one morning after the president of the country rejected her mercy petition. How, for this part, because now we're sort of, well, I guess we as readers now are pulled back, but, and you as the writer, you, you pull back. Can you talk about why as a writer? Mm, that's a great question. I think I tried um, writing and rewriting this, section um, and I toggled you know back and forth between doing this and staying with first person Jeevan um, but I felt that I wanted um, I wanted an expansion of what we are able to see in this moment and it needed to be I think bigger than what Jeevan could give the reader in that moment I wanted to see, you know, the journalists who are waiting outside the walls and don't quite know what's happening, but they're just kind of loitering. And I wanted to see, you know, this person doing the ordinary bureaucratic act of making a note in their, you know, ledger. Um, I wanted the, the person who sends um, a piece of mail um, by what is called speed post in India. It's, you know, um, and, and so all of those elements, the, the banality of it felt really important to me to capture, you know, the banality of it in the, in the eyes of the state um, and um, the kind of indifference of it. Um, and I felt that we needed to zoom out and see all of these other elements um, in order to see how insignificant this was for the state and of course how devastating it was for for Jeevan and her family devastating in, indeed but i love how you then make the next very short chapter like the very next moment is mm -hmm. Jeevan again that i feel was such a um a place of some some redemption or hope for um, the reader because so much now has been crushed in a way 
when did you know that she would speak beyond death? You know, that that surprised me. It was really a moment which um, in which the, the character surprised me. You know how people always talk about how, well, they are the ones writing the characters, but then you have these moments in which characters surprise you. And this was truly a moment like that because I, I did not see this book um, straying anywhere away from, you know, strict realism. Um, and so to have this voice of somebody who has just died, it was something that really surprised me, but I felt that it needed to be there so that the last that we see of this character that we have followed throughout the book is not the indifference and violence of the state, but a relationship that has mattered to her. And, you know, this kind of um, wish to stay on and do what she has wanted to do throughout the book, which is to care for her parents. And, and so lovely that she also addresses the first line, mother, do you grieve? And it, it's this echo of the first, like how what you read for us earlier, when um, the mother speaks and says at the very beginning, you smell like smoke. So mm -hmm. we, we, we have... Um, oh, that is so beautiful. I didn't even think about that. So thank you for reading that into the book. It's interesting to think that P.T. Sir has the final, he has the final pages too. Mm -hmm. I've already made my position on him perhaps too clear earlier. <laughs> but so, and so for the book though, because I think what we've also talked about today is in the making of a burning, there's difficult decisions that you make that are necessary for the world of the no that the novel has, has made. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think, you know, P.T. Sir having the final pages, part of what I wanted to explore in this novel is how success in this world is not and cannot be unpolluted. Um, you know, even the people who succeed do so by giving up something vital and by choosing to live with what they have sacrificed, you know, by choosing to live with a version of themselves that they might not have imagined, you know, a version who is um, perhaps less moral than they would have liked to think. Um, and so the, the pollution of that notion of success, that kind of, you know, tainted and murky success was interesting to me. And I wanted to urge, I guess, the reader to think about that. For you right now, for writing, what are some of your your things that you would say? I don't know, words of wisdom or <laughs> <laughs> for today. It doesn't have to be for all time, but yeah. just I think I would um I think I would go back to what we were talking about earlier, which is that, you know, so much of writing comes from living, you know, there there has to be um, space to observe and be in this moment. And it's such a difficult moment. So I would just say to everybody who is trying to write and maybe struggling to write and finding it really hard right now, I would just say that, um, you know, it's okay to live through this moment and let that be all that you're doing. You don't have to 
find reflections or find, you know, beautiful prose or, or poetry to put down right now. I think it's okay to take your time and be gentle with yourself and then come back. You don't know what of your experiences right now will become fuel for your future writing. Thanks for thank talking today. Thank you so much, T. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for this very generous and um, careful and caring read of the book. It's such an honor. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Welcome back to the Daily Sports Report here at WCBN FM Ann Arbor 88.3. I am Andrew Miller, and with me today is my first time with Zach Balo. Balo? How do you pronounce your last name, buddy? Uh, Balo. Balo. I remember the Lions used to have a quarterback with that last name spelling. I never knew how to pronounce it. We are here to recap everything sports-related and the news, which hasn't been much, but last night uh, the Tampa Bay Bucks went – did they go to MetLife? I think they went to MetLife Stadium. Uh, surprisingly suffered zero injuries and walked out of the game with a very narrow W. Zach, what was your takeaway from this game? Uh, really, it was a lot closer than I thought. I was expecting with the Giants and the uh, Buccaneers, especially like the Buccaneers just destroyed the Green Bay Packers that one week. Honestly, I was surprised by that, by how close it was, especially with Daniel Jones uh, for only two picks in that game. Yeah. I mean, they were like they were a play from overtime where they could have won that game if like Dan- Daniel Jones uh, wasn't so bad. But is it Daniel Jones's fault or is it the team around him? Uh, I would say honestly, like Evan Ingram is pretty good. So is Golden Tate. They, he has some weapons around him. Sterling Shepard's pretty good. Maybe the running back you could argue isn't so good, especially with Saquon out of injury. But the rest of it, I think. He has a good cast. I think it's more on Daniel. Just, he needs to develop more better decision-making and all that. Really? Yeah. You think so? <laughs> Ingram, is, I think, is a good tight end. And I think Shepard. I, I just don't know if uh, the – you know, I just don't know if, like, is Darius Slayton being his best option?